Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. The Bible tells us uh, that Jesus taught using parables all the time. And these stories still relate to us 2,000 years later if you haven't figured that out yet. Because Jesus was a master storyteller. He deals with slices of life that are just as real for us today as they were back then. And now we pick up the story. It's a well-known story. I ask that you would kind of just go with me into the very depths of it and let it speak to you. Jesus, as we join him, is in a marketplace setting, and he's having conversations with people who are far from his father, far from God. People who had made lots of mistakes, painted outside the lines all the time, people who used terrible language, drank too much, slept in the wrong bed, and cheated other people. Jesus is interacting with them as we join, talking, listening, spending time with them. At this point, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes, we've talked about the Pharisees a fair bit, the scribes were kind of the, the lawyers, the, uh, the, the ones who kept track of everything in that day. Uh, they walk up and see what Jesus is doing, and they think it's scandalous. Because the very people Jesus is enjoying interacting with are the people that they would not be caught dead with, and I mean that literally. They have an intense dislike of these people because they don't think they honor God. They take his name in vain, and they don't live by God's rules. What's more, they actually feel religiously justified in, de in uh, detesting these moral screw-ups. In fact, what they've done, the Pharisees, who were learned men in the scriptures, go so far as to think that they are above everyone else and can then speak and think for God. And it kind of works in this reverse circular kind of thing where, well, we were created in God's image, therefore God is like us. Oh, if God is like us, then we know what God's like. God is like us, right? Like that's where they go. Instead of we are like God in some imperfect way, they transition it to go, God must be like us. And we're so close to him that God has a heart like our heart. Therefore, he has people that he loves, that he bestows blessing on, that he answers prayers for. But then there's a list of people who disgust him because they disgust us. So Jesus hears them grumbling about this. He knows their hearts, and he sets into motion, and he does something very unusual here. He tells three parables in a row, back to back to back. In the first, he says there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. One day, one of them gets lost, so the shepherd leaves 99 safe sheep in the fold, and he goes out on this search and rescue mission for that one lost sheep. He goes out and searches high and low until he finds it and brings it back home, and then he throws a party to celebrate. Then Jesus said, there's also a woman with 10 coins, and she loses one of them, probably 10% of her life savings. So she searches high and low for that one coin, turns her house upside down, and when she finds it, she's so thrilled, she calls her neighbors over and, yep, you guessed it, throws a party. Before we get to the third story, though, I have a question for you. Have you ever got into one of those conversations that goes down the track of discussing or comparing your parents with others? Like, my dad would never be caught dead doing that. 
Can you think of one or two things that your father would never be caught dead doing? Cooking, doing the dishes, I'm just stereotyping here. We, we all have these stories, don't we? My dad, for instance, would never vote for a certain political party. I'll not tell you which party that is, but I will tell you he worked for an oil company in Calgary. That should pretty much tell you. <laughs> My dad would never attempt to do home repairs on his own. Always called somebody. My dad would never be caught dead having supper later than 5.30, or before 5.30, actually, only at 5.30. And my dad would never be caught dead negotiating when buying a car. It drove me nuts. And I just saw everybody start to you know, salivate when he came into a dealership because what's the sticker price? Okay, where do I sign? No! See, to really understand this parable, it's crucial to know about Middle Eastern dads. Middle Eastern dads of Jesus' day and the two things that they would never, ever be caught doing. First, in that day, a Middle Eastern dad would never, ever, ever divide up his estate early and give it to one of his kids. Never, ever, under any circumstance, no way. Now, in our day, of course, people do whatever they want with their money. A father today might take vast portions of his wealth, distribute it to his kids or his grandkids or to a pastor he particularly... Well, you know what I mean. Uh, he, might, he might take a large chunk of it and donate it to charity. There isn't much cultural etiquette left today when it comes to how a dad handles his estate. It's whatever he feels like doing. But in that day... A Middle Eastern dad would follow a thousand-year-old tradition of holding on to all of the land, all of the livestock, all of his belongings he'd acquired over a lifetime, and then just before he died, there would be kind of a ceremonial transfer of the bulk of it to the oldest son, and then the rest to the members of the family. That's the way it had been done for a thousand years. This was a no-brainer when it came to dads. But in this third story that Jesus tells, a brash young son approaches his dad and asks him a question that never, ever should have been asked. Dad, give me my portion of your estate now. How about it? Anybody here ever have or seen a non-compliant child? James Dobson writes about a two-year-old kid named Frankie a strong-willed kid, a prodigal two-year-old, if you will. Dobson says one day he pulls a chair over to the front, of, front window, this two-year-old boy, and places it inside the drapes next to the window. He's standing on the chair there, staring out at the world, when his mom quietly comes looking for him. She spots the chair legs protruding beneath, protruding beneath the drapes and quietly slips in behind him. And then she hears two-year-old Frankie speaking to himself in very, very sobering terms. And he's saying, I've got to get out of here. <laughs> well, that's the story of the prodigal son. I've got to get out of here. He says, here at home, I always have to do what the father says. I have to work in his fields. I have to eat at his table. I have to follow his rules. I don't want to. 
My life would be so much better if I had no rules. I could be my own boss, do my own thing, chart my own course. I'm willing to guess that it will occur to every one of us at some point in our spiritual journeys too. I would be happier if I went my own way. I do not trust that if I stay at home with the Father that it will lead to the best life I could have. I've got to get out of here. Some of you perhaps are having these thoughts even right now. Some of you are tempted to enter into a relationship that you know will dishonor God. You know it, but it feels like it will bring love or happiness or pleasure, so you want to leave home. Some of you are tired of being faithful in a task or as a parent, and you feel like if you could just escape and run away, you would be so much happier. Some of you are tired of being at home financially by giving, by tithing, by being generous, by dealing honestly. You know if you took shortcuts, you'd have more on hand to enjoy for yourself, and you're tempted to leave home. The prodigal son says, my life would be better if I could just get out of here. But here's what he never does. He never thinks it all the way through. He never thinks about the consequences. For those of you who are here right now, I want to ask you to think it all the way through. If you're listening to me and you hear my voice right now, think this through. If you are unfaithful in your relational life, if you sacrifice your financial integrity, do you really think you're going to get to the end of your life without regrets? Some of you are contemplating steps right now that if you take them, they will lead to sheer misery. Everything in your future rests on whether you're willing to do the hard work of thinking through the consequences of your actions. If you do, you'll be spared enormous suffering. Well, this son doesn't do that. He's crossed the border now for, from toying with an idea to actually acting on it, carrying it out. There was no greater insult. You need to understand this. There was no greater insult, no greater pain a son could inflict on his father because in that culture in that day, what the son has basically said by asking for his inheritance now is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, in some ways, the most remarkable part of this story is what comes next. The father does not do what every single listener to Jesus' words expected him to do. It was what it was expected for any normal father to do in these extremely unusual circumstances. The father does not beat. The father does not banish. The father does not even berate his son. The father takes what is still rightfully his, his old age pension, if you will, that's all they had in those days, and freely gives it away to his son. You can almost hear Jesus' listeners gasp. So I'm wanting to be a little interactive today. We've done the ah before, you remember that? Well, now I want to hear a gasp. So all of us collectively, and do this at home as well, I need to hear because we're going to do it again later in this message. I need to hear a gasp. You know, like, ah. So here we go. All together now. One, two, three. Ah, that was nice. See, not only does the father not have to do this, no father would ever do what he's doing. 
there was a collective gasp from all of Jesus' listeners. Never would a son ask such a request, and never ever would a father respond like this. The father allows the son to leave and gives what he asks. Jesus, you see, is determined to demonstrate in this story that the prodigal father, the prodigal's father, is not your typical Middle Eastern father. Beyond that, the father in heaven, about whom this story is really being told, is not your average God. You know the other stories about the shepherd looking for the lost sheep or the woman looking for the lost coin? They're doing merely what any of Jesus' listeners would do in their places, what anybody would do. But here the father does what no father would do. Here is a God who gives freedom to his children, even when he knows that freedom will cause him and likely them immense pain because he hungers so deeply to be in a love relationship with free children who choose. It was kind of a fatherly compassion that allowed the son to have the breathing room he needed to strike out on his own, to do his own journey, to learn his own lessons, to come to his own conclusions, even if that road was going to be bumpy from here to there. The son defies the father defies his obligations, and not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. We're not told exactly what that wild living is, by the way. That's all we're told, wild living. He convinces himself that it's all right to do this. He turns temptation into action. He wastes very little time in doing it. The bright lights of adventure and excitement are beckoning him. Forget all the others. This is about me. This is my time to shine. Responsibilities and relationships are just entanglements that cramp my style. I'm going to do things my way, and he lives my way, and he makes decisions his way. And that's exactly what he does with his newfound freedom. He spends his inheritance in a reckless and extravagant way, which, by the way, is the definition of a prodigal. Prodigal means extravagant spending, spending without thought of consequences. But ironically, this freedom that he feels from all entanglements translates eventually into a very tragic kind of prison. Instead of the freedom that he thought was beckoning, it was actually a prison of emptiness, a prison of intense loneliness, disappointment, pain, and eventually need. And the next verses say it all. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So here he is now. He's out of money, out of rented friends, out of food, out of options, and for the first time in his young life, it's reality check time. Now he sits in a foreign land, and the bright lights aren't so bright anymore. In fact, they've gone out altogether. He's got to face the truth about himself. He's got to look in the mirror about his life and his future for the very first time. He's in the big leagues now, and there's no one around to bail him out anymore. The only job he can find is feeding pigs. Jesus wants his listeners to know that he's so low, he's looking up at the bottom here. 
It was, it was the last thing. It, you could not get any lower than to be associated with pigs if you were a Hebrew in that day. And even worse, to be feeding them and you know, basically spending your time with them, it was the low of the lows of the lows. And he's hungry. He basically starts to think about getting in the trough right along with the pigs. And I picture him amongst the squill, slopping around and stopping everything for a moment. Finally, with the smell, you can just imagine it. Those of you who have hogs and those of you who don't, we can all imagine this, right? And I picture him there standing amidst all that, and he goes, what, what am I doing? What am I doing here? And the story turns on a single phrase that Jesus now says when he came to his senses. When he came to his senses, he finally acknowledged reality. You've heard me say this before. We don't change when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. And when it gets hot enough, then we're actually willing to change. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. And every one of us could give a testimony to that fact. We rarely think about the direction of our lives when things are going good. We're on cruise control then. We're not thinking about God. This is fun. I'm in the driver's seat. But all of that can crumble in a heartbeat. Some of us are right at this place in our lives. We do all kinds of activities, trough feeding, if you will, as a way to cover over the huge hole in our lives. We feed at the ego trough. We feed at the greed trough. We feed at the lust trough. We feed at the busyness trough. How long are some of us going to keep feeding on stuff that doesn't satisfy our soul? At some point, you've got to come to your senses. You've got to look in the mirror and courageously stop, face the reality in your life, and ask this question. What am I doing? What am I doing here? Can you admit it? I have this emptiness inside of me. With the help of God, I'm going to quit running away to a distant country. When David's life fell apart, he wrote this. I thought about the wrong direction in which I was headed and turned around and came running back to you, being God. Here at this crucial moment, this young man faces the most severe heartache that he's ever felt. He faces up to the truth about his life and he comes to his senses. There's something very important about this point. It doesn't say God made him come to his senses. This response, this choice, is totally up to the Son. He chooses. He comes to his senses. And then he composes a little speech. Did you ever have a real important conversation coming up, an interview, or you're asking somebody for a date, and you're a little nervous, so you compose the little speech that you're going to say beforehand? Well, that's what the prodigal son does here. I will set out then and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He decides to go back on the hired servant plan. This is plan B. Plan A was to do it my way. Plan B, I'll go under the hired servant plan back to the father. He knows he can never now enjoy the privileges of intimacy of a son with his father because of his actions. I wonder for how many people today, if you were fully honest, you would say, 
Wow, I understand what it is to be a hired servant. I try to do things for God, but I don't know what it is to live simply as a beloved son or a beloved daughter. I don't know God like that. If this is you, then you need to travel with this son right now as I walk us through this part of the story. You need to travel with the son back to the father. This desperate, starving boy now makes the long journey back to his village, utterly defeated, utterly crushed by what he's done. And he knows what's coming. He knows what to expect. He thinks about the moment when he gets back to his village, every step of this journey, the hostility, the humiliation. He will face it not just from his father and from his father's household, but from the whole village which he has disgraced by his actions. The boy reaches the outskirts of the village and word spreads from one house to another as he proceeds along. He's back. He's back. Look how skinny he is. You can hardly recognize him, but that's him for sure. Look at him. He's lost everything for shame. For shame. So the sun comes up the street and the people are gathering and collecting behind him for this climatic moment when the sun gets what he deserves. Haven't you ever felt that? Come on, if you have siblings, you felt that, right? Oh, now he's going to get it, right? And that's what they're feeling like, oh man, now he's going to get what he deserves. And then Jesus says, and this great word, but again, remember I... I tell you over and over again, pay attention to the great buts in the Bible. This is one of them. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. By the way, the word there, the actual phrasing, is exactly the same phrasing that's used for uh, what Marty spoke on last week, Pastor Martin. It's the same phrasing. When the Samaritan saw the plight, he had compassion. It's the exact same phrasing. Now, now it's the father having that same compassion on his son. The father's waiting for his son to come home. He looks down the road. You just wonder how many days he's been waiting, looking down the road. I suspect all of them, to be honest. How many prayers has he prayed over this time? You see, the father could have said to himself and would have every right to do this, that ingrate he took all my money and went. Now he's on his own. The, he thought of me as dead. He wished me dead. I wash my hands of him. I disown him. Yet that is not what we see here. Instead, we see a father whose heart has remained hopeful, soft for his son's return. Then one day, in the distance, all his waiting pays off. He sees his lost son coming. Then comes one of the most wonderful phrases in all of Scripture. Jesus says about the father, he ran, he ran to his son. See, a Middle East nobleman with flowing robes never, ever, ever ran. It was a violation of dignity in those days. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, wrote, great men never run, great men are run too, right? They walk slowly like John Wayne. Hey, pilgrim, right? You come to me, you come to me. I don't, I'm not coming to you, I'm not taking a step. In fact, even better if you run to me. CEOs and kings and popes, you never see people like that running, do you? People run to them. 
they ring a little bell and somebody comes a running, right? Running is done by children, by those who are desperate or needy or too eager or afraid. But do you see? Jesus is saying this is the heart of God. The Father's heart is so full that he forgets his dignity, he forgets his robes, he forgets everybody that's watching this, and he sees only his starving, aching, exhausted figure of his son that he has given up for dead. And he's coming back home. And the Father takes off. Can you just picture this? Full stride, hair blowing back if he had any, robes all hitched up, sandals flopping, necklace flinging, arms outstretched. Can you see the picture that Jesus is painting for his listeners here? This dad is running full speed now down the road towards his wayward son who has wished him dead. His listeners are gasping again. Exactly. Until they slowly begin to understand what Jesus is trying to teach them here, which is that the dad in this story is no ordinary dad. And the father in heaven, about whom this story is really being told, is no ordinary father. The father in heaven, the God of the universe, has his heart so totally wrapped around the heart of even his most wayward children that when they're tired of living dead-end lives in distant lands and they turn around and head for home, they can expect one thing. They can expect to find the patriarch of all patriarchs in full stride, arms outstretched, crying, welcome home, son, welcome home, daughter. You will never know how I've longed for this day. For what happens next, there are no words. The father sees once more the, the body that he held for the first time, the first day that he entered the world, the body that he fed and clothed and watched over and now so emaciated, so hardly anything more than skin and bones just wasted away. And he throws his arms around that body that he thought was lost to him, and he can't let it go. He sees the face that was once the face of his little boy, now so gaunt it's hardly recognizable, stained by sin, defeat, and fatigue. He starts kissing his son, and the way Jesus uses the word here, it means that he just kisses him over and over and over and over. He can't stop. And for who knows how long, there's not a word spoken. Just tears and embraces and kisses that say what words could actually never say. That's the heart of God towards you, my friends. Whatever you are, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, that's the heart of God towards you. God doesn't want you to live as his hired servant. He wants you as his beloved son or daughter. If you just turn, if you just turn to him, he longs to run to you and throw his arms around you and kiss you over and over and over and never let you go. That's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of God that Jesus wants to proclaim. But finally, the Son speaks. I want to ask you to look real closely at what the Son says. And if you can, remember how it's different from, from the draft of his speech, which we heard a few moments ago. His plan B approach to his life was the hired servant plan. 
Now he realizes there is a much greater plan, and it's not my plan at all. It's the grace plan. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In all sincerity, in all brokenness, he confesses his waywardness. He comes clean. He just puts it all out there. No excuses. Do you see how it's different, though? When the son actually speaks, there's no mention of the hired servant plan anymore. I think the son is just so shattered by this unimaginable expression of love from his father. I, th I think the son has anticipated returning a thousand times, probably with every step he took on the way home. And he has sketched out every imaginable scenario in his mind, except one. I think he had steeled himself against the probability of public ridicule. I think that he had contemplated that maybe his father would banish him from the home forever, basically say, I don't even know you, and he would have to leave. And he knew that he deserved it. I think he thought about every scenario that might happen but one. I think he never thought that the tears flowing like water in this moment would not be coming from his eyes, but from the eyes of his father. I don't think he ever considered the possibility that his father would be the one to run to him. I think that the son had no idea until that moment of the kind of love that was in his father's heart towards him. And he doesn't want to be away from home anymore. He doesn't even want to be separated from his father's love for a moment, not even the distance now of a hired servant. You see, every other world religion says you've got to do something to make yourself acceptable to God. But the catch is you never know how much you have to do. You're always left wondering. Christianity, on the other hand, following Christ says you never do, you can never do enough to earn your way into heaven. You can't make yourself perfect, and perfect is the entrance requirement. Christianity is spelled done. It's done. Jesus Christ has done what we could never do. He lived the perfect sinless life, and he went to the cross on our behalf in our place to pay for the sins, our sins, and the sins of the world. And remember what he said just before he died on the cross? He said, it's done. It's done. It's finished. The sins of the world are paid in full for. And all that's left for you to do then is to apply on the grace plan to apply this to your life, to receive his free gift of forgiveness and grace and mercy. We can really see the distinction between do and done when you look at the stories told by various faith systems. And I'm just picking one here. In fact, there's a story that's told in Buddhist literature that's very similar to the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. At least they start out very similar. In both stories, young men kind of rebel against their father and they go off to a distant land on their own and then everything sort of falls apart for them and they decide they want to come home and be reconciled with their fathers. They both start out the same. But in the Buddhist story, the young man comes home and what does the father do? He forces him to pay the penalty for his past misdeeds by spending years and years and years in servitude. That'll teach you. But what happens in the Christ story? The prodigal son comes home, and instead of forcing him to work off his past misdeeds, the father opens his arms and gives him unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness and grace, and he embraces him, and he enfolds him. There's a difference, isn't there? 
The Bible says God saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Of course followers of Christ do good things. They do. We do. But it's not to make ourselves acceptable or right in some way with God. It's after we've received this free gift of God's grace that we say, I can't believe I was expecting to be banished. And instead, I got God's love. I got embraces. I got kisses that God loves the likes of me. And we're so overwhelmed by this gratitude of what God has done that it's just natural for us then to express that love towards other people who need that love just as much as we did. The son realizes that this homecoming is a completely undeserved gift, just grace. It's the grace plan. He gives up the last of his pride and just surrenders utterly to this overwhelming love of the father. Now, there are three common threads that run through these three parables. Did you catch them? The first is really obvious. Something is lost. Duh, you say. That's the point. Something is lost. The sheep, the coin, the son all gone missing. The stories would end there without a point, except for the second thread, which is that each of these items that were lost held enormous value to the one who had lost them. The loss stirred them. It was something precious to them. The loss stirred their hearts. The sheep that was missing stirred the heart of the shepherd. Some of you have pets. Some of you have dogs that you don't even want to admit how much they've intermingled your feelings for them. Some of you feed them better than we got fed as kids, frankly. Some of you pay more for their haircut than some of us still do. Some of you are so involved and stirred up by your pet, if your dog wound up missing, you'd be a basket case, right? Well, maybe not so much with cats, but with dogs for sure. Shepherds knew how valuable their sheep were, much like pets. And when one of them was missing and endangered, it stirred the heart of the shepherd. The coin that was lost really mattered to the woman. We're led to believe from Scripture that these were probably her only ten coins that she had to her name. And in those days, if a woman lost that which she could survive on, it was not a pretty scene. There was no social assistance. A tenth of her estate, whew, gone, just like that. And the son... Well, a missing son always matters to a father. And because these mattered, it led to action, to an all-out search to have back that which was lost. The shepherd realizes one sheep has wandered away, one sheep has wandered away and the search is on. The woman realizes a coin is missing, and she starts a search, full court press, on the house. The father in the story knows his son is chosen to get lost, but he never stops searching that, for that son in his own heart, searching out the window, looking for him. You know, an immutable law in life is that we tend to search for that which matters to us if it's missing. If something goes missing and we care less, we don't even bother looking for it. But if we care, oh, then the search is on. Whatever it is that we lose that we really want to regain, we orient our time, we orient our values, we orientate our, engine, our energies in the, re, in the regaining of it, the search for it, whatever it is. And before we get to the last thread, I want you to put your feet into the shoes of the Pharisees and the scribes for a minute who are listening and hearing this point that Jesus is making directly at them. He starts with a big number. 
a big scale, a hundred sheep. But then he narrows this down to 10 coins. And then he narrows it down even further to the point and the heart of the story. He goes from 100 sheep to 10 coins to one son. The first story is about an animal, just about a sheep. The second story is about money. Uh, a little closer to people's hearts, maybe, than sheep, but money still. Third story, real emotion comes into play. What does he talk about? A boy, a sheep, money, a son. Uh, okay, yeah, 110, but one? Jesus is drawing them in. He really wants the Pharisees to get this. He's saying, these people I'm hanging with are outside the family of God. They're lost. You know, honestly, I'm not sure there's a, a rougher, harder, more emotionally charged word in our language than lost when we're talking about people. These people that Jesus was hanging with were lost. And, in, and it stirs his heart so much that there's nothing else that matters more in the universe than that he would get them back, that they would come to their senses, that they would turn back, be forgiven, be cleansed, be brought into the family of God with the Father where they belong. Don't write even one off, he's saying. Don't harden your heart. Don't cast them away. Don't do it. If you knew how much even one matters to the Father, how much they matter to me, you'd never have a cold heart towards them again. The heart of God is overflowing with a love that's different from human love, with a love that's pure and deep and all-encompassing, a love that's passionately inclusive, the hug. I want to remind you, you if you're hearing my voice, you are precious to God. Your life matters to him more than you could ever imagine. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how fouled up things are, no matter how people have fouled you up, you are more precious to him than you could ever imagine. Wanting you in community with him is such a big deal to him that he took the most extreme measure he could to demonstrate it. His love by sending his son Jesus to die for your sins and mine, to make it possible for you to come back into a forgiven fellowship with him. God readily made the supreme sacrifice for you, and he did it without batting an eye because you matter that much to him. So today, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're male or female, young or old, educated, uneducated, scarred or wounded or squeaky clean, you matter to God more than you could ever possibly imagine. And the reality of that truth ought to just do something to your heart right now. Because when you realize how much people, each one matters to God, then you also realize, well then, he matters to God too, and she matters to God too, and he matters and she matters, and then you start saying to yourself, I guess I've never laid eyes on someone who doesn't matter to God. Every person we interact with today or every day the rest of our lives is someone who matters to God enough for Jesus to give his life for. And pretty soon we start realizing people ought to matter as much to us as they do to God. Our hearts should be softer towards them. Our arms should be open wider. Our eyes should look at people differently and our prayer should be for each and every one of them to come to Christ and continue to be loved and nurtured and cared for from that point on. And that brings us to the last thread. In each of these three parables that Jesus told, retrieval brought rejoicing. 
The shepherd finds the lost sheep, brings it back, says to his shepherd friends, that which was lost has been found. You've got to party with me. And this is nothing to the rejoicing in heaven when one person repents, Jesus adds. The woman finds the lost coin, calls her friends and says, that which was lost has been found. You've got to party with me. And Jesus says the angels will join in that celebration when even one person repents. The dad is the son come home and the father in turn wants everyone to know that his son is back and fully forgiven and fully restored. So he has the servants quickly dress the boy in his finest robe and wear the family ring of authority. He puts shoes on his feet. They're the mark of a free man, shoes, not a slave. His dad says, he not only says, kill the fattest calf we have, he not only says, we're gonna have a party because my son is home, he says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring the best robe and put it on my son. In the Middle East culture, the robe was a mark of incredibly high distinction and value. It is as if he was saying, I'm going to make my mistake-prone, broken son who is feeling defeated right now, who is feeling like he doesn't matter, and I'm going to envelop him with this rope of love and grace that communicates he is a treasured child of his father. And then he says, let's celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. The greatest thing in your life is when you receive that robe of grace and love through Jesus and you come to him sometimes defeated and broken and feeling like a failure and you become a treasured child of the Father. Friends, I don't think most of us have any idea what it means when God, when we come home to God. There are some parents with us today who have a prodigal child. And you know what it's like when they come home. There's no way of describing it. Others of you have a prodigal child right now and you dream about the day. You're looking through the window as this father did. You dream about the day when he or she walks through the door and what that would mean to you to put your arms around them again. How valuable is that kid to you? Try to imagine the rejoicing in the heart of a father when his son comes home, when his wayward daughter comes home. Friends, I don't think we have any idea what it means to the father in heaven when we say, God, I choose you. I receive the lavish love you have for me. Jesus says, that's the heart of the Father for you. Whatever you've done doesn't matter. How bad it might seem to you, if you just turn, the Father longs more than anything to run to you right now and embrace you. However long you've been living in a distant country, short or long, friends, right now it's time to come home. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Maybe you've been worried that you're going to get a closed fist instead of open arms, and you're worried you're going to be shamed instead of embraced. You're worried that judgment is going to come your way instead of mercy. Jesus says, worry no more. This story is for you. He wants you to know exactly what you can expect from the Father in greater measure than you could possibly ever imagine if you will turn away from whatever trough you're feeding at if you will turn around and head for home, you will find the Father in full stride with an embrace waiting for you. Are you ready to turn back? Are you ready to head for home today? Maybe you've been living for a while like a hired servant and you long to know the embrace of God as a son or daughter that's beloved and you need to tell him that. You need to say, I'm choosing the grace plan. It's your time to come home to come to your senses and say, I'm not going to feed from this trough anymore. I'm done. Spin around on your heels, leave that distant place, and come home, and in the distance see the Father in full stride, arms extended, to offer you his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his adoption, saying, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. 
Can some of you right now say, God, that's what I want for my life? I want to turn around right now? Well, here's how. You just repeat very sincerely from the depths of your heart, quietly, silently, right after me, this prayer that I'm going to pray. So pray along with me. God, I have a wandering heart, no surprise to you. And I know I've wandered away from you. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I need forgiveness through Jesus, and I ask for it now. In the middle of the mess that I'm in, I invite Jesus to be the forgiver of my folly and the leader of my life now and into the future. I propose, God, my Father, my loving Father, with your help to follow Jesus from here on out into a new kind of life, a new kind of future, and into a new and better eternity. And for all of us, Father, I pray that this reminder of who matters to you, every single one does. I pray that the reminder of who matters to you would permeate us within and through the power of the Holy Spirit give us renewed passion to see those who are lost, to see those who are lost found, see them found we pray this in Jesus' precious name, and all of God's people agreed and said, amen, amen. Thanks so much for your attention this morning. Just remember that mercy came a-running. This isn't, however, the end of the story, if you know the story. That's part two next week. 